My name's George. I'm um, the new curate at Trinity. The old curate's still here. Will is still very much alive, don't worry. I am just um, an addition. The other curate, the second curate, I think he likes to call me. Um, and um, I, uh, we, I got ordained um, about, well, nearly two months ago now. And, came, and I moved up from um, London to not the north, the East Midlands. I've been told off a few times. I said, you know, I'm, I'm from Kent originally. Kate's from Devon. We both love the South. We met in London. We were there for seven years. For us, anything above Oxford is the North. As soon as the signs on the motorway say in capital letters, the North, we feel like we're in the North. But I'm told we're in the East Midlands. So everyone take a breath out. Um, yeah, so, so just a little introduction for me. I, um, I didn't grow up in a Christian family. I didn't grow up with religion as a part of my um, childhood. I became a Christian as a teenager, um, and Jesus has changed my life. Amen. Come on. And so I just want to say, if you're, if you're new in here this morning, if you've been brought along by someone, if you've maybe wandered in because you heard that there was some noise happening, or you heard Classic FM in the port or whatever, if you've come in for whatever reason, and you're here this morning, you don't know what to make of all of this, you wouldn't necessarily call yourself a Christian. I get where you are. I really do. You are extremely welcome. Um, and I can only hope that you, this morning you encounter something of the love of God. Yeah, before anything else, I was, I'm, I'm not going to get into it yet, but that you are um, completely loved by God. Church, friends. You are completely loved by God. So we're in this series still called Jesus and the One. Who's excited about this? Who's still got some energy for some more encounters that people have with Jesus? And the last few weeks, um, at least since we've got here in this series, we've really been looking at two things, haven't we? We've been looking at this big story of Jesus, of the love of God in Jesus and how Jesus comes to us. He has encounters with ordinary people. He enters in to everyday human life. He meets with people, he heals people, he performs many miracles, and then he dies, he rises again, he dies for us, he rises again, that we could know God. So we have this huge story, this macro story of God in Jesus. And then we've been looking in this series at these smaller stories, haven't we? These micro stories, these individual encounters of people with Jesus. And today, as we looked at in our reading, we're going to be looking at Jesus' encounter with the father, with the father, the father with his possessed son. Some Bibles say the father with the son who had an unclean spirit. The, um, the passage in, in a lot of Bibles focuses on the son, but I'd love this morning to focus on the father. I think where, where, where the really remarkable part of this story for me and in my experience is Jesus' encounter with the father as he comes down from the mountain, sees this commotion going on, and yet speaks to the father, gets to the heart of who the Father is, and then, because he's Jesus, heals the Son as well. I wonder um, if you've had a time when your expectations haven't been met. Just me? Yeah, all your expectations are being met this morning though, right? Great, good. I, um, I remember in February this year, uh, we um, decided to go on a little holiday with a couple of friends of ours, Wes and Josie, two of our, two of our best friends. And we decided that we were going to go to France. 
because my, uh, my aging um, aunt and uncle who are in their 70s now, brilliant, brilliant people, decided that they were going to go over to France and they were going to spend their twilight years um, in the middle of France. Never, don't really know where they are. Couldn't tell you, my geography of France isn't that great. But we decided we were going to go out and visit them. And since we were already going out, we said to Wes and Josie, so what guys, why don't you come along with us? We'll make a little holiday out of it. It'll be a road trip. It'll be France. It'll be beautiful. We can drink cheap wine. We can do all of these amazing things together. Anyway, we decided to get a 3 a.m. ferry from the port of Dover near where I grew up. And we got on this ferry, and everyone was very tired. Everyone had a very busy week working. We got on this ferry, got ourselves over to Calais, and we're sat in the car. I haven't, I've never driven on the um, right side of the road before. Got to Calais, and I'd punched in the postcode, the address that they had given me onto the sat-nav. And it came up. Estimated time, eight hours. I know, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was the same reaction they had. George, did you, did you look at how far it was before... Before we came to France, did you, did you look at maybe the distance or how long it was going to take or maybe a route? Um, I didn't. I absolutely didn't. And so we get in this car and we start voyaging along for eight hours. It was a little bit different to what everyone had expected from this holiday. 3 a.m. ferry, eight-hour drive. And we, get, we go, actually go through pretty much the centre of Paris, which got everyone very excited, but it was pitch black still, so we didn't get to see a thing. And we keep going and we end up in kind of the... Um, I think I was joking at the time, I called it the heartland of France. I think it's nearer Spain, nearer the Spanish border than it, was, um, than it was to England in the end, than it was to Calais. And we get there, and it is miserable. It's just been snowing in France. It's raining. Josie, one of our friends who's in the back, she admitted that she was expecting like a south, south of France, a villa, maybe a pool, maybe a hot tub. I'll be honest with you, when we ended up, when we got to our destination, we got to the place we were going, it was just a kind of worse version of a bad English town. <laughs> and, I, and I'm from Folkestone, so I know about bad English towns. And it was, just, it was just a wet, there wasn't anything quintessentially French about it. The food was pretty bad. The wine, would you even believe, was expensive. None of our expectations got met. Later on in the week, we decided we were going to have a cultural t- trip to Limoges, Limoges, Limoges. We're going to have a cultural trip to Limoges. We get in the car. It's raining again. We think that's okay, though, because Limoges has got this world-famous cathedral. We'll head over to this cathedral. We'll feel all cultured out. We'll feel all intellectual. We'll drink in nice French coffee shops. We get to the cathedral. It's closed. <laughs> Nothing about that holiday was what we expected. And yet, it was one of the best times we had. We ended up staying in this little, um, this little cottage that didn't have any heating. Uh, it had mouldy walls. The, when we got there, the woman that was renting it to us still had all of her stuff and her animals in there. So she asked us to come back a few hours later before we could move in. We ended up crowding around in sleeping bags around this fire in the, um, in the, in the living room. We managed to get this fire going and we're all crowded around there in these sleeping bags and duvets, absolutely freezing. And because we, um, we, we're not practical people, myself, Kate, or our friends Wes and Josie, we're not, not real thinkers when it comes to stuff like that, we ended up nearly killing ourselves because we opened the fire up. Um, a few hours later, one of us said, oh, it seems a bit smoky in here, doesn't it? And we realised that the smoke was just pouring into the room. And um, there you go. There is a point. There is a point. The point is... 
that this really is, um, is kind of an illustration of what's going on in the Gospels. That Jesus is going around, he's doing the stuff, he's teaching the crowds, he's having these extraordinary encounters with people, but he's not the king and he's not the Messiah that they expected. I mean, the end of that story is that we have one of the best times with Wes and Josie than we ever have done. Anyone, you know, you've been with friends and it's gone so bad that actually it was really funny and it was great. It might have even been better than if it had all worked out. But the point being that Jesus wasn't the Messiah that people expected, but he was the Messiah that they needed. And we come to um, this encounter today in the Gospel of Mark. And Mark has just broken, broken the news just a chapter before where we are, where our reading this morning brought us. He's just broken the news in Mark chapter 8 that he's going to have to die. The disciples have been called on this journey. Mark's full of action, isn't it? It tells of all of these exploits. Immediately, the first thing in Mark, Mark chapter 1, the kingdom of God has come near and immediately Jesus is performing miracles and signs and great crowds are following him. And it is amazing. These disciples have said yes to this call of following Jesus and it's great. There's such a buzz. They're all pumped. They're in. And then suddenly we get to chapter 8 and Jesus says, oh, by the way, I'm going to have to die for this. I'm going to have to die for you. What a buzzkill. Jesus, can we not just keep, you know, gathering crowds and doing, no, no, this, this story ends in Jerusalem and I'm going to end up on a cross. This is how it needs to happen. And of course, they didn't understand a word of it. It was so different to what they expected that they were unwilling to hear what Jesus was trying to tell them. And then we get to the beginning of this chapter Mark chapter 9, and we've got the transfiguration. We've got this amazing story of Jesus taking Peter, James, and John, his kind of inner circle. He's got all the disciples, but his sort of closest friends up to the top of a high mountain, it says in, this, um, says in Mark. Up to the top of a high mountain. And, and the disciples, Peter, James, and John, see Jesus transfigured before them. It said his, his, his clothes became white. I think, that, I think it says something like, like the, the most bleached of clothes, like, like more white than any, any bleach could bleach them. And there's this moment of, of basically of, of, of God showing through Jesus who he really is, that he is his son, that he is God, that he is divine. And, out, and next to him there comes uh, Moses and Elijah. Moses, of course, for the people reading this story, would have represented the law, all of God's law. And Elijah would have represented the tradition of the prophets. And he is even greater than them. And Peter, got to love Peter in this moment. He's one of those people that when Peter doesn't know what to do, he's like an activist. If he's worried or he's scared or he's confused, he's just like the sort of person that does some admin or gets on with the dinner or doesn't really, he's just like, oh, I just need to do something. This scares me. Do you want a sandwich? And he says, he says to Jesus, doesn't he, in this moment, this, we've had this transfiguration moment where Jesus, Jesus has been shown to be who he really is in the heavenlies, this, he, that he is divine, that he is king, that he is Lord. And Peter immediately says, shall I put up some tents? Or, um, what's, you know, where are Moses and Elijah going to stay? We probably need to stay for a bit longer. And God being God, shuts Peter down and he says, this is my son, listen to him. And then we go from this mountaintop moment, this moment where we've really got to a, a, a climax in the gospel so far of showing Jesus' divine authority. And immediately after this moment, Jesus knows he's got more work to do and he comes back down into real life. 
And that's kind of the movement of Jesus, that Jesus is Lord, that he is king, that he is divine, that he is sovereign. And yet he doesn't stand far off. He continues to come down into our mess, into the everyday. And so while Peter wanted to stay up there, Jesus says, no, I've got more stuff to do. This miraculous moment, but I need to get back into the everyday. This happened last week for me. When Kate got back from Devon, she was helping with her sister's wedding. And um, she was coming in on the train. And about 20 minutes before she got in, I chose that moment to unload the car from when I'd left her in Devon and to tidy the house really quickly. And I thought I'd get some husband points, so I picked up some food and I decided to cook a roast. And I bought some nice wine. And um, yeah, I did well. I thought I did well. And I was imagining this miraculous moment where Kate would walk in. She'd, I'm so glad I married you. You're amazing. Aren't you brilliant? I love that you've cooked me a roast. You've tidied the house. Even the car's clean. And about uh, half an hour before Kate was about to come back for dinner, we stopped off um, to get something from the shops and the car didn't start. Got back in the car. Two hours later, there's a breakdown guy there. The roast beef went cold. I know. The potatoes were no good. A miraculous moment came back down to being Monday. Ordinary life cut straight through it. And fortunately with Jesus, there's no division between those two things. That Jesus is fully God and yet he fully enters in to our human experience. So, shall we take a closer look at the passage? Yes, great, let's do it. Great. So, let's read from the beginning. So Jesus comes down from the mountain, doesn't he? It says, when they came down to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing about? He asked. A man in the crowd answered, teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him into the ground, throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. So the first couple of things we notice that I have kindly highlighted for us all is Jesus comes down from the mountain and the first thing is that there's a large crowd. There's a crowd present. This is the thing that gets the attention. They come down, they see this crowd has formed, that there's all this commotion. Turns out the crowd has formed because essentially this man who had a sick son had brought him to the disciples, know the disciples had been hanging out with Jesus, had brought him to the disciples, his son to the disciples, had asked them to pray for his son that he would be healed, and they fail. And they get called right out, don't they, in front of him. I brought this to your disciples, but they weren't able to do it. So you've got crowds, and we've got disciples who have failed at doing something that they've been asked to do. Can we um, get the next slide up? So the father says, Teacher, I brought you my son, who is possessed by a spirit and has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not do it. The first thing to note is that this father is desperate. He's really, really desperate. This is his son, who has been possessed by this unclean spirit. This spirit has nearly killed him multiple times. He is at his wit's end when Jesus turns up. 
I don't know what kind of courage he had to, to muster up to ask the disciples to help. And then they, it hasn't worked either. So he's, got, he's desperate. He's got this huge problem. The people he thought could do something about it haven't been able to do anything about it. And so he has this conversation with Jesus. Next part says, so they bought him, the boy. And when the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. So we know as well that this spirit, this wasn't just an illness that was inconvenient um, for the boy. This wasn't just an illness that made his life difficult. This was an illness that was trying to destroy him. And who knows how many times this has happened? Who knows how many times since the boy had been, been, um, been ill from birth? Who knows how many times it had tried to kill him, to throw him into fire and water, to destroy him? They bring the boy to Jesus and he goes into a convulsion. Jesus asks this question, how long has it been happening to him? I think this is fascinating Can you imagine being there? You're in the crowds. The father has just told Jesus what's going on. The boy gets brought to Jesus and immediately starts having a seizure. This is what we read. Immediately, this boy starts having a seizure on the ground in front of him. And rather than diving in, Jesus asks the father a question, which seems like a bizarre thing to do. And the question is, how long has he been like this? Now, I read that, and I'm particularly confused because I don't think it's like the answer to that question has any effect on whether Jesus can really do the stuff. We've been looking for weeks in this series about how Jesus can heal people. We've been looking for weeks about how it just in a moment someone can go from being blind to having sight. It's not as if Jesus asks this question if the father replies, oh, it's been happening six years. And Jesus says, oh, if it had been happening five years or under, I could help. But six plus, it's a different thing. Why would he ask this question? Is it going to make a difference? Is it going to change whether Jesus is going to heal this boy or not? Of course it's not. Jesus asks this question because he wants to get at the heart of something that's going on in the Father. At the heart of the father's pain, at the heart of his desperation, at the heart of his difficulty, is the fact that this has been happening to his son since he was a child. When Jesus says, how long has this been happening to him? He invites the father to open up and get to the root of the issue here, which is that the father's done. This has been happening for so long. Who knows? I think the father probably had tried to get, he maybe had taken his son to the temple and asked for healing. Maybe mystics and sages had rolled through their village before and he had taken his son to them and nothing had happened. We don't know, but maybe he had been praying and praying and praying as any father would for years that his son would be healed and nothing has happened. When Jesus says to the Father, how long has this been happening to him? He cuts right through to where the Father's at, which is that he is desperate, but he is exhausted. 
His expectation of what God can do has been so bruised by his experience. He's asked for healing time and time again. He has prayed for healing time and time again and God has not answered. If we can get the next slide. The father continues on and says to Jesus, it has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. And then here's the key bit. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. You see, this situation has been going on so long that the father, who knows, when his, when, he, when his son first became ill as a child, maybe he had a lot of faith that it was going to be okay, that they'd find a cure, that he would be healed, that with the right prayers and the right amount of investment and the right energy, his son could be made well again. But experience has taught him that none of this has worked. So his, his, his that God can do something has turned into an if. If you can do anything, he says to Jesus. If you can do something, I, I'm, I'm not betting that you can, but if you can do anything, please help me. Can we get the next slide? You see, what's going on in the Father here is so often what goes on in my own heart. I have a circumstance that is difficult. It feels like God's far away. It feels like maybe he hasn't acted within it. Life is hard and I'm desperate. And I'm suffering. And so I take my difficult experience and I start projecting it onto God. My son hasn't been healed yet, therefore God must not be interested in him. My son hasn't been healed yet, therefore God God must want him to be sick. So often in life we take our circumstances and we project them onto who we believe God is. And what does that mean? When we do that, it means we have a low expectation. If we don't believe that God wants to move, if we don't believe that God is interested in our lives, of interest in the people around us, that he wants to act and move in our lives, then our expectation is low. I don't think God's really good, so why would he act? Um, Someone asked me a couple of weeks ago, we went for coffee, and the first question they asked me, they looked me in the eyes and they, they asked me this. They said, do you believe that God is good? bit of an intense question it caught me off guard I thought we'd just have a nice chat with the new curate but you know immediately look me in the eyes do you believe that God is good and I said yes it's okay I do believe that and then he looked me in the eyes again and he said do you believe that God is only good do you believe that God is only good The experience of the Father and our own experience mean that, our, that, our, that we start to think that God is someone that he's not, that God isn't really good, that God isn't really interested. You know, I, I, well, I remember being a boy at school and whenever I was asked to go to the teacher's office, I always thought I'd done something bad. Can anyone relate to that? I never thought, oh, great, they think I'm getting along great. They want to give me sweets. They want to congratulate me. They want to tell me what a wonderful student I am. Of course I didn't. I always thought it was bad news. And often, because I was quite a good lad, it was good news. It was about something that was okay. And we so often like, project this. We have this kind of bad teacher mentality when it comes to God. That God isn't, doesn't really want to give us the things that we ask for. He doesn't really care about the things that we care about. And so we come to God as if we've got to coerce him, as if we've got to persuade him. We come to God with this if-you-can attitude. God, I'm not sure you're really interested, but if you can do anything in my life, then, 
you maybe if you're up for it, can you do it? And we know that's not the case. Jesus says, it is my pleasure, it is God's pleasure to give you the kingdom. He says, doesn't he, that if a son or a child asks their, um, asks their parent for bread, they're not going to give them a stone. That God has good things for us, that God is fundamentally, unchangeably good. Next part of the scripture says this, Jesus calls him on it, doesn't he, straight away. Don't you love this? Can we just remember that whilst all this is going on, this boy is still having a seizure? Jesus calls him out on it straight away. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. I love this bit. Immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my belief. My unbelief, sorry. Help me overcome my unbelief. Create the next slide, Matt. When we start with our experiences and we project them upon to God, we get low expectations. That's what's happening in this story. Is everyone with me on that? But suddenly Jesus interrupts this, wish, this kind of if-you-can mentality that the, that the Father's got. And when we start with Jesus, we realise that Jesus comes into our difficult experiences. Okay, this is the point of the, this is one of the most fundamental points of the gospel. That God, although he's God and could stand far off from us, Although he could be a God that sits on a cloud somewhere and just shouts, you know, orders every now and then through people and tells us how to live. Actually, what we have in Jesus is that God takes on flesh and comes into our mess. That we know that in Jesus, God knows exactly what it means to be human. He knows what it is to be frustrated. He knows what it is to laugh, to cry, to have friends. And so because of Jesus, we know that God can come into our experience. That he knows what it is. He knows what it is to be human. He knows what it is to hurt. He knows what it is to suffer. And he enters into our experience. And because he enters into our experience, he's able to call us beyond it. Because we know that God is not far away when we're suffering. Because we know that God is not far away when we're going through difficulty. Because we know in Jesus that he is with us. Jesus can then call us beyond it. I am with you. Now hope. I am with you, but this is my best. I am with you, but this is not the end of the story. And I think so often this passage gets misunderstood. So often we look at this passage and we think we've just got to have more faith, guys. If the father just had a bit more faith, then maybe his son would have been healed ages ago. But the Father's faith is a direct result of encountering Jesus. When Jesus says everything is possible for the one who believes, that's the point at which the Father says, I do believe, help me in my unbelief. It's not about having more faith, about us working up some kind of Christian might within us. It's about receiving faith from God, receiving faith from Jesus as a gift. The Father receives faith through his encounter with Jesus and is able to believe. When I was um, uh, nine years old, when I was in primary school, 
Um, my mum um, had this 18-month battle with cancer. And in 2002, figure out how old I am from that, sorry. Uh, she passed away. And I was nine years old, like I said, I wasn't from a religious family. And my dad took early retirement to look after me and my brother. And um, a few years ago, in 2013, uh, my dad died. Five years ago, actually, um, this month. And my dad was ill for a really long time. I remember being 16 and he had all sorts of cardiac issues. And he got really ill when I was in about year 11 when I was doing my GCSEs. And we were told quite early on by nurses and hospital staff that it was really going to be a deterioration. That we don't expect there's going to be a lot that we can do, that he's, kind of, he's just going to get worse and worse and worse, and eventually he's going, to, he's going to die. And I remember, I'd not long been a Christian, but I remember praying my best prayers for my dad. I remember there were moments where he was really bad, and then suddenly a new doctor would get involved and everything looked okay again. Where he would be out of hospital for almost a year and everything looked like it was going to be okay, and then the next year he was in hospital for seven months of it. I remember praying. I remember I got my friends praying. I remember I was in a church and I got us praying. When the, the night that my dad died, I remember um, the nurses coming into us and, and telling us that it was time to, um, to say goodbye. And so I went in with my brother and, um, and my aunt. And we sat beside my dad as he was, you know, departing as he was dying. And I remember the moment that he died. And I remember kneeling beside the bed and praying with everything I had. If there was any faith in me, I was using it in that moment. I was praying and praying and praying. And I was like, don't let this be the end, Lord. Do not let this be the end. I pray, would you bring life back into him? Would he be resurrected even? Because I believe that you can do that stuff. And I was praying and praying and praying with tears in my eyes. And nothing happened. Nothing happened. Years of prayer and nothing had happened. That experience in my life meant that for the, for the past few years, I've actually had real issues with believing that God can heal people. It's that human thing, isn't it? Well, if he does, why didn't he do it for me? If God does heal, why didn't he heal when I needed it the most? Why doesn't he heal the people that I care about the most? Why does he heal sprained ankles but doesn't seem to deal with cancer? Why does he do that? Why doesn't he move? I believed in God and I came to church and I said the right things, but fundamentally in my heart, I'd given up believing that God could heal people, that God was really interested in moving in powerful ways today. And I remember having this moment and it was like this freeing moment not, not so long ago. And in this moment, I remember someone said to me that you've had a difficult experience, you've had a horrible experience. 
but your experience isn't God. I had taken this circumstance and I had put it onto God and it took me years to realize that the circumstances in my life don't change who God is. Because believe it or not, however difficult it is, my experiences aren't Lord. My experiences aren't King. My circumstances aren't Lord. My anxieties and my worries and my questions aren't Lord. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. He's the one that stays the same. He is unchanging. He is unconditionally loving. And when Kate said this morning about praising God through gritted teeth and clenched fists, I get that. What does it mean for God to enter into our experiences and call, them, call, call us beyond them? I think it looks something like that. Knowing that God is completely with us, that he was with me in the most difficult parts of my life and yet there is more. It doesn't change who God is So let's have a quickly look just to finish at the expectations in this story because that's really where I want to land. What is our expectation of God this morning? I have a, um, a little piece of paper in my wallet and this is going to be the one morning that it's fallen out, isn't it? Oh, here we go. This piece of paper is um, from my ordination and it has written on it the description of what a deacon, that's my job and I'm a deacon, for those of you that are interested. Um, and it has a job description of a deacon. And this line really struck me. It's just in the last paragraph of this. It says, Deacons are to seek nourishment from the scriptures. They are to study them with God's people, that the whole church may be equipped to live out the gospel in the world. Here's the important bit. It says they are to be faithful in prayer, expectant and watchful for the signs of God's presence. Gosh, that hit me like a ton of bricks. Part of my job description is to be expectant that God is going to move, to be expectant that God is present. And that's not just for deacons, that's not for people that wear a collar, that's for our calling as Christians, is that our calling and our part of our role of what it means to follow Jesus is to be expectant that when he is there, everything can change. And so we look at this story, and this is where I want to land. We've really looked at three groups of people at the beginning of the story, when Jesus is coming off of the mountain, we've got these crowds that are gathering around. And maybe you're, you're in here today and you're, you're kind of in the crowd category. What did the crowds expect to happen? I think they just expected a crowd, really. Maybe some of them had heard about Jesus, but I reckon a lot of them saw this crowd forming and decided to join as well. And they just expected that there were going to be people and there was something, some kind of commotion going on. They didn't expect a lot. And then you've got the father... What was his expectation? Or maybe it was that he expected that God could do something once, but his experience had bruised him so much that he wasn't really sure whether God was good anymore. He wasn't really sure whether God could still move today. And I want to suggest as we finish that our, our calling today, our calling as disciples is to be the disciples in this story, funnily enough. Because in this story, what happens? The disciples get called out, don't they? 
Jesus comes down from the mountain. He asks what's going on. And they said, we brought these people to your disciples. We asked, we brought this boy to your disciples. We asked that they, um, they would pray that he would be healed. And it didn't work. The disciples are embarrassed. They failed, basically. But here's the thing. When Jesus comes down from the mountain, when he enters into the crowd, the disciples, though they're embarrassed, though they failed, though they haven't got their theology right, they know that when Jesus comes into the situation, everything is about to change. And that's why the presence of God is so important at Trinity. This is why we hear it talked about every single Sunday. Is our calling isn't to be shiny, isn't to believe all of the right things, isn't to have all the right Christian words or to put on a good mask and smile and turn up to church on Sundays. Our calling is to come exactly as we are, with our life being exactly the way it is, with all of our stuff and all of our questions and our joys and our doubts. We are called to come as we are, broken and weak and beautiful and brilliant and all of those things just expecting that if God is here, he's going to change the game.